everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week, producer, mixer, engineer, all that stuff, William Whitman. Now, you may or may not know the name William Whitman, but I guarantee you know a ton of the music that he's worked on. We discuss as much as we could in here. We try to jam-pack a bunch of it. Cindy Lauper, for one. He produced She's So Unusual. He worked with the Hooters on the Nervous Night album. Scandal on The Warrior. He works on the first couple Outfield albums. He works on a couple Fix albums. He works on those first two A's albums. We had Richard Bush on here from the A's. He worked with Rob Junkless, with Graham Parker. I love Graham Parker. Red Rockers. Joan Osborne. He produced Relish. In fact, that's why you're listening to Right Hand Man. I mean, everybody remembers One of Us, but this was probably my favorite song off that album. I love this track, and you don't hear it as much, so I thought it would be a fun opportunity to remind everybody by playing this one. I love it. He also tells a fantastic Mick Jagger story in here. He worked with Air Supply, Loverboy, Pat Benatar. All of these people get named in here. We hear some stories. In the 90s, he was also a member of a band called Too Much Joy. In fact, he's back to primarily making a living as a musician again. He is Cindy's bass player and musical director. So if you've seen Cindy in concert at any point in the last decade or two, there's William playing bass and kind of running the show. We love talking to producers. I know you guys love these stories. He's worked on so much stuff that I really enjoy, and I thought it'd be fun to hear some stories about him. I have to give a big thank you to our buddy Dill with the excellent Rockonomics podcast for pointing me in William's direction. William has been on the Rockonomics podcast, and Dill thought it would be a match made in heaven to have him come on this show, and he was right. So thank you, Dill. And thank you, William, for coming on. He called me from his home in Westchester County, New York. When I reached out to you, I just assumed, based on all the people you've worked with, that you had to have been from Philadelphia. Because there's a strong Hooters connection. There's a strong A's connection. There's a, And Rob... And Eric from the Hooters, Eric's been on the show, by the way. I love him. All right. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, I mean, those guys, there's Cindy Lauper connections. There's Joan Osborne, all this stuff. How did you get connected up with them? I was working at a particular recording studio um, in the late 70s, this would have been. And at that time, Arista Records, Clive Davis, wanted to make a deal with the studio wherein he would essentially give us a big lump of money in advance for a cheaper hourly rate. Mm. Um, and Clive's staff producer and A&R guy at that time was a guy named Rick Chertoff, who mm -hmm. a name you probably know. I do. And so because Clive had made this deal with the studio, Clive was now pressuring Rick, saying, well, you should go work at this place where I just made a deal and we'll get a cheaper hourly rate. And Rick came over and sort of looked through the roster of engineers and decided the most sort of rock AOR-based guy was probably me. So we did a quick trial recording and hit it off and have been working together ever since. Okay. So um, Rick had gone to school at Penn, University of Pennsylvania, where his roommate was Rob Hyman. Got it. And and 
eventually formed a band, including Eric. And at that time, um, the time that I met them, um, they were signed to Arista as a kind of prog rocky band called Baby, Baby Grand. Baby Grand, right? Yeah. Those guys were great. The very first thing that I recorded with Rick was, oh, oh, bring them in over the weekend and we'll do a Baby Grand track and see how everybody likes it. And they liked it enough that they came back and made that album and a few other things, and uh, a few other things with Rick. Um, and again, I've been working with all three of those guys pretty much since 1976 or seven. Amazing. Amazing. And you're still friendly with everybody, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm a Hooters fan, I tend to focus more on Eric and Rob. I mean, you guys were sort of joined at the hip there for a while. I mean, you brought, I think it was you and Rick who spearheaded that first Cindy Lauper album, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Rick and I both have this similar philosophy, I think, of when you're making a record, rather than just studio guys or hiring different people to play on different songs, we both like to sort of create the band that's going to be the band pretty much throughout the whole record. And so we were we were casting, if you will, for who would fit with Cindy musically and, and in terms of personality, um, and had tried a few different combinations of players before he finally arrived at, at back at Rob and Eric, who turned out to be sort of the perfect basis for that record. Now, why? What, what about them specifically do you think made it such, a, a, such great chemistry? Well, first of all, I think it was enormously helpful that the four of us already had a sort of a working relation, a good working relationship that I think that, you know, creates a shorthand that makes everything else easier. But also it was a fortuitous mix of a certain kind of, um, you know, Eric very much from a sort of, I want to say British invasion based Mm. sort of taste background, Rob very much steeped in reggae and ska, mm. and, and Cindy wanting to explore that those areas and also some R&B influences she was bringing in, so that, that, that just happened to be a happy musical combination where it all went in the blender and doesn't really sound like any of those things, mm. but it created mm-hmm. its own unique, and that's a word that tends to be overused, but in that particular case, I think yeah. really was unique, that I remember... Um, when we finished the record, we listened back to the whole thing put together in the control room. And I remember Rob Hyman saying, I really like it, but I don't know who the fuck is going to listen to it. <laughs> because, because it was just so nothing like anything on the radio. Or, you know, we, we, right. we should not have had a prayer of getting on the radio, except that we thought, well, those songs are pretty good. Mm-hmm. And, and she's amazing. And it's, yeah. You know, to some degree we got lucky, but it really was not at all feeding the machine the way the machine thought it wanted to be fed. We were taking big chances. Well, it, uh, you know, it's one of those landmark records that is winning on so many levels. Number one, she's a unique personality, brings a lot of fashion sense, a unique sound. Um, I think it may have helped, not that they were in direct competition with each other, but having Madonna around at the same time is sort of, right, is sort of getting people turned on to pop music from women specifically at that moment, you know? That's a funny thing, though, because, you know, it probably still goes on even today, although I think to a lesser extent, but that was very much the case then. 
that radio would say, well, they would literally say back to the record company, well, we can't, we like your record, but we can't put your artist on the radio because we already have a woman rocker mm-hmm. in rotation. It's like they really felt like there are only so many slots for women. So yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that that was an advantage so much as a disadvantage. Uh, Madonna tended to happen just a little behind us. I mean, when Cindy's record was coming out, I don't think Madonna's was out yet. Um, okay. But there was some competition in similar circles from other places. I mean, I guess there yeah. was there was Heart and there was a, a, a Yaz and I mean there were there were female rockers. Uh, um, as I said, I think the strength of the songs and the fact that it sort of staked its own territory helped us, but also you can't really discount that she's just an extraordinarily good singer that she delivers a she delivers a story in a way that very very few people can do absolutely yeah and having girls just want to have fun being the you know feminist yeah. anthem that it was and all again all these things and i and i don't want to imply that like i said i don't think madonna and cindy were in direct competition with each other Not but yet. as you mentioned for whatever reason there were you know, station, radio stations, labels, whoever, were only going to allot so much space to yeah. women on the airwaves. And it was the two leaders of the pack at that moment happened to be Madonna and Cindy Lauper, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I think, at least within a year, it really was indirect competition for mm-hmm. those very reasons that, sure. that in all kinds of avenues, people were going to pick one or the other, not necessarily the buying public so much, but, but radio and, and TV appearances and venues and all that, you were going to be fighting it out to some degree. Yeah. I'm guessing Brittany and Christina went through it. I'm guessing I'm sure, yeah, Beyonce exactly. and Katy Perry go through it. I mean, yeah. for whatever reason, we just, they, we can't, they won't let us appreciate more than like a couple of women at a time into a, you know, to that degree. But, um, so now you work for, you play with Cindy now, and I want to get deeper into that here in a little bit, but when you were working on, uh, she's so unusual, Mm -hmm. are you, is the label coming to you and saying, we've got this singer. She's in, is it the blue angels? That was the name of the original. Yeah. She was blue angel was her rockabilly band. Yeah, that's right. We got this girl. She's got an amazing voice. We're not quite sure what to do with her. We want to get a team together. We want to give her some songs because for whatever reason, she wasn't, she's not like a prolific writer or at least wasn't at that moment. I don't know if maybe they didn't have faith in whatever she would bring or they thought, I think it was more, I think it was more that, um, the the lack of, the the lack of being convinced that they were going to break her based on her current writing, especially when she was writing with the rockabilly band. I think it was up for sale. Um, it was something like that. It was a, it was an accidental meeting between the the man who signed her to Epic, which his name was Lenny Pizzi, he was the head of Epic A and R, and Rick, who was a Columbia A and R guy at that point, had moved from Arista, uh, and the two of them had a fortuitous accidental meeting, where it was basically, oh, I've got some peanut butter. It's like, oh, really? I've got <laughs> some chocolate. <laughs> and and oh, we should see if we could work something out there. And mm-hmm. Lenny showed Rick the video of Blue Angel, and Rick thought she was great, and said, you know, we have some these songs collected. That and Rick and I had been demoing a bunch of those songs, looking for who to do them with. It's like we knew we knew that we had sort of a core base of some songs, and then Rick 
found some others that are pretty extraordinary. And then, of course, yeah. time after time gets written in the studio. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that wasn't bad. But Amazing. But I, I think to answer the question, it was a little bit of Lenny looking for what to do with Cindy and Rick knowing we have these songs that we need to do something with and it being a good match. Although it took a little bit of convincing. So do you then, I mean, was the success then taken completely by surprise by everybody? Or is this a, is this a result of a record label saying we've, we've, we have a good feeling about Cindy Lauper. We're going to put all our muscle behind making sure that she happens and that this album becomes a thing. It was not, I mean, Lenny was a, a fantastic supporter and hardworking in her corner, but it was not sort of, oh, we know this is the monster thing. We're going to throw every resource we have behind it. She, she had to sort of prove her ability, and it record took actually a long time to break. We sort of hung, it came out in the autumn, I believe, and had to hang in through the Christmas holidays when really nothing gets added except greatest hits records on radio and superstars. And so it hung in for a very long time before it really did start to click. But girls just had enough, I, I want to say legs, with no pun intended, that, um, that it, it eventually became the, the sort of quirky anthem that it became. I should know the answer to this, and I've probably heard it before, and I'm blanking on what it is right now. Why is Steve Forbert in the video? Do you oh, know? I, have, I just think it was so somebody likes him. And oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's a secret meeting there. Okay. There's all kinds of you know her, her parents are in it, and yeah, you know, it's, yeah. Okay, for the even to this day, I remember the first time I saw that video. I'm like nine or ten years old. And to this day, Steve Forbert, as great a singer-songwriter as he is, is still the guy from the Cindy Lauper video, first and ah. foremost, in my brain. And I'm sure he would hate that if he heard me say that, but it's the it's a fact. And anyway, I just wondered if you knew what the story was. Um, so then, okay, so shortly after this, now there's that first Hooters album, Amore or Amore, which is sort of obscure, but the big breakthrough is Nervous Night. And you work on that. I actually had recorded uh, or produced a, a couple of singles for them, which were the first records the Hooters put out locally in Philadelphia, um, including the original version or original recorded version of All You Zombies is on that. Oh. Holy Moses on the mountain High above the golden gap Went to get But that's way before, years before, in this period where 
they've been dropped from Arista uh, as Baby Grand, and they formed this new band, and they're playing locally in Philly and don't have a record deal. And it's a little bit of a tough sell, even with Rick having an insider position there. Once Cindy's record turns out to be a big hit, now you can go to the record label and say, hey, you know those guys who we made the Cindy Lauper record with and who wrote Time After Time? Well, let's give them a record deal. And so Amore had been their Mm self-released record in Philly, and some of those songs made it remade onto Nervous Night, although it's a completely different recording. But I mean, that was the story that they were trying to build up their fan base and and get some attention and eventually get a record deal. And that's what Amore was. Okay. And uh, again, that's another sort of, I don't think, I I worry sometimes that people don't don't remember how great the Hooters were back in the day with And We Danced and Day by Day. They had such a unique sound with the with the melodica and yep. the uh, the Hooter. mandolins yep. and everything. Yeah, the yeah. hooter. I was trying to give it the technical term. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, so when you're working with them, are they coming to you and they're saying, you know, William, I'm a little, we're, we're going to be different. We're going to use the hooter and the mandolins. Or are you working with them in tandem to kind of shape a sound and a style? I think it's some of both. But I, I mean, it's not like we didn't, no, you know, they were playing and developing that. And, you know, again, it was very much ska, reggae, tinged, meet those American folk instruments. I mean, they, they, they sort of had their elevator pitch already as to what they were. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I, I'll tell you an interesting, weird thing that I remember from the first record. I remember Eric said, do you know how on the um, Beatles' first record, before they were in a studio position to double track that what they would do a lot is they would sing unison. The two of them would sing the same melody and then break into harmony when they felt like it. And he said, well, we want to do that, which I thought was a little strange, but there's a lot of that on Nervous Night, as it turns yeah. out, where rather than double tracking, they're doubling each other. Yeah. Huh. So they they had strong ideas and a, and a pretty set musical identity, although some of those arrangements, zombies in particular, got very much pulled apart and reinvented and and nothing like what they had been previous Hmm. to that. Hmm. Okay. They sounded the way they sounded, and it was a question of recording that rather than shaping it in a certain sense. You know, I mean, especially when you're dealing with instruments like that, the idea is to make them sound as real as they can rather than to be twisting them too much. There's just a lot of religious overtones in so many of their songs that seems to be kind of almost their trip in a way. I mean, not not in a bad way, but they just are so unique. Is there a moment on that album that you are particularly proud of where you just think, I remember the day that this song happened or was recorded or we came up with this thing and it was magic in the room. Can you remember a moment? Sort of. Um, I, I, I don't remember a recording moment so much as um, I think I had already made the Scandal record. Uh, we're going to get to that one too. <laughs> yeah, but but in any case, I know we brought Patty in to Patty Smythe in to sing on "Where Do the Children Go" on the Hooters record, mm. and I remember doing a mix of that and playing it back, and it just had a sort of air in the room, like a haze around it that just mm. sounded magical to me. That it just felt like the whole room filled up with the sound of that. Nobody understands 
And then I remember trying to remix it for something that some picky thing that somebody wanted to change. And I remember having the argument, putting on that other mix, and everybody in the room going, "Oh yeah, there's something about that one <laughs> that you know you can't you can't fiddle with that one. Mm-hmm. We just got lucky on that one mix. That that was a kind of a magical moment. And I don't even know wow. what it was because mm-hmm. if I knew what it was, I would have done it again. <laughs> <laughs> just felt right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. You, you, yeah, mixing in particular, you sometimes just catch something, hit some piece of equipment a certain way, and. It's the it's the luck of the draw a little bit, which is you know why you don't. Well, there was quite a few examples in the catalog there where we've used rough mixes too because you just can't beat them. Is the success of Nervous Night what kind of propels you into the outfield? Because there's some similarities there. I mean, they're not exactly the same, but they I can see what the connective tissue in a way. Um, I I don't think they're connected. In ter- they're not connected in terms of the business, in terms of how no, I got, I'm got to of work. Sound. You know, I mean, I mean, even in terms of how I get from one to the other. Mm. If anything, um, the experience of making the Warrior and working with Mike Chapman on that had more mm. to do with when I got the demos. Well, I'll tell you two funny things about that. But when I got the demos for the outfield. Uh, and they were they were considering four or five different producers at that point that uh, Columbia was, you know, I was on the list, but Columbia was looking around. And they were a trio, basically. Well, not basically. Mm-hmm. At that point, they were a trio. And I said, I don't want to make like a photographic representation of three guys in a band playing together like a police record or something like that. Uh, what I want to do is way over the top a hundred guitars and a hundred voices and huge drums and really stretch it. And I think at that point is when John Spinks, the sort of the main guy there, Mm -hmm. the songwriter and the guitar player, sort of his eyes lit up and I sort of felt like, okay, that's, that's right there. That's where I got him. And it turns out it was, um, but the, uh, that was really based on my experience working on the Scandal record where Mike Chapman kept saying, oh, let's see if we can squeeze another couple of guitars on there. And it's like mm. he wasn't afraid to throw 10 guitars on a track as opposed to a real picture of two guitars, bass, and drums, you know? Um, and, and I think I, I took that to the extreme <laughs> with, the, yeah. with the outfield, but that was sort of my jumping off point. And the other funny thing I was was going to say about that is when I got the demos for the outfield, I was finishing up uh, the Graham Parker record that I produced. Ah, that's on my list, too. I'm going to ask you about that in a minute, too. Yeah, I, well, I'd love to. I mean, he's one Good. of my favorite I, people. I love but, him. Yep. But when I, when I was finishing up the record, I got those demos, and I was sitting in the control room at Atlantic, and I played the demos for Graham. And Graham said... I hate this. It's going to be huge. You should do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good eye. That's yeah. great. Oh, so, man. So him, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, okay, so the first Outfield album comes out, Play Deep. Your love is huge. Say it isn't so. All the love do really well. I mean, you're on kind of a streak here. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there, I know there's other things. Especially there, yeah. Yeah. And uh, how is your life changing, you know? Well, uh, it, it changes completely. It changed completely after She's So Unusual, but even more so after The Outfield, where it was very much turning down projects rather than 
nosing around trying to find projects like we're all back uh, to doing now. But but the thing is that it's um, that's the difference is it opens an enormous number of doors. There there really there wasn't anybody that I couldn't call up the record company and say I'd be interested in producing that artist and at mm-hmm. least have a conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a very different position to be in. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think. Between us, especially, but Rick and I both individually and together had at that point a pretty good history of breaking new artists, which is the the hardest thing to do in a certain yeah. sense. That, that I knew other producers who actually said, you know, what I like to do is take an artist who's selling a hundred thousand and turn them into a platinum act, and it's like, yeah, well, that's great, but if you can take somebody nobody's ever heard of and turn it into a platinum act, that's something else. I hadn't pieced that together, but you're right. I mean, all three of these al- artists, you're working on basically their debut album. Yeah, from zero. I hadn't exactly. thought about that. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so tell me about The Outfield. I, they're one of my favorite bands ever. And Bangin', the follow-up, is also a great album. If not, I, I might even like Bangin' a little bit more than Play Deep sometimes, depending on my mood. But There are a lot of things on Bangin' that I like better. Um what Bangin doesn't have is the kind of light poppy mm-hmm. thread running through it that I think people found appealing, at least in that time and space, about the outfield. That uh, Bangin was John trying to get a little more serious about stuff, and I don't know that in some ways that played uh, as well, although still a very successful record, so you know I'm not complaining. Right. Um, um, I'll tell you one thing about, well, many things about Play Deep is that um, it took forever. <laughs> and Why? Well, in part because I was being, again, in sort of Mike Chapman mode, I was being crazy meticulous. And, you know, it, we're in analog days, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like you could say, I'll fix that one-eighth note that's slightly out of time, or I'll take that chorus and paste it into the second chorus. It's like we would spend all day double-tracking guitars, getting them perfect. And then if we had to do it again tomorrow, adding two more layers of guitars. And I, and I wasn't exaggerating when I say some of those sounds are, I counted it recently for some other discussion, I think there's something like 24 separate guitar passes on your love. Oh and there are probably, I believe the number was 96 vocals at some point. Mm. It was Tony, the lead singer, and... Uh, friend of theirs who's who's the ringer singer named mm-hmm. Frank Callahan and me and quadruple tracking them and then the next part and quadruple tracking them and so on and so on and so on. And so by the end of the song, when there are a couple of different 
counterpoint layers of that fighting against each other, each one having something like 48 voices, it's, it's really a lot of meticulous overdubbing forever. Um, especially the vocals just took a very, very long time because there's so much of it. Who was holding you accountable for such intricate work? Was that just, were you chasing the vision or the muse you had in your head? Yep, that's really what it was. It's either that or a kind of, uh, you know, insanity. Yeah. But yeah, but yes, I I would just sort of take it home, well, back to the hotel, actually, at that Mm -hmm. point, and and, um, listen every night and hear other parts in my head and come in and chase them the next day. Uh, A lot of it was arrangemental of sort of taking a, a basic guitar part and then splitting it into four or six different mm. parts played by different instruments rather than just one guitar could play it all the way through. Mm-hmm. But but you know, I would sort of take the first half of a riff and have that played on a 12-string and the second part of the riff and have that played on a high string and that sort of thing so so that the textures were changing all the time. And that was, yeah, pretty much me wanking. <laughs> what were they thinking about this? They were having fun, I have to say, okay. that uh, okay. that on on the whole... Both those records were pretty fun to make. I mean, we got good. along. We got along great. Everybody was having a good time, and um, you know, there's a certain amount of tension when you're not getting something and you're spending all day trying to get it. But that's inherent in any working relationship. But on the on the whole, those records were a pleasure, but a long pleasure. <laughs> sure. Well, I didn't know if Tony and John are sitting at home like, what is this guy doing to our music? He, you know, he's changing it beyond recognition. Or if they're like, yes, this is enhancing what we f- feel good, at, how we feel good about ourselves. Yeah, you know? exactly. I, I, happily, I think they came in every day and whatever we would do next, they would go, listen to that, you know, and, 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 and really be getting into it. I mean, to the point that there was one song on that record that, just because I thought it might be nice to have an outlier that I said, let's not put our big sort of queen cars, big block vocals on it. Let's keep this one really simple. That was I Don't Need Her. And at that point, John is the one who said, no way, we're doing that on everything. Yeah. You said you see me Miss John, what an amazing songwriter. And I had yeah. Tony on here right. about a year ago or so. Such a sweet guy and such a regular guy who was yeah. blessed with this amazing voice. Yeah. About the most normal guy in the world, except for this incredible voice. You yeah. know what I mean? Yes. And it, and, uh, I, and, and, actually, and, and actually a very fine bass guitar player as well. Yes, very good. Good point. Yes. But you can tell he's the type of guy that would just be hanging out in the pub. Otherwise, you know, and would probably rather be. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And he's finally now, thank goodness, finding his way after John's death to kind of get out there on like 80s tours and put out a solo Uh, album. I love them. I'm so happy for them. 
I don't know how you'll feel about this. I never know if this is a good thing to mention or a bad thing, but I was listening to the Fix's Calm Animals album today. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which I think, I, I got to admit, I don't love Ink so much, but I think Calm Animals is a great album. And, well, uh, you know, you won't, you won't hurt my feelings there because, you know, towards the end of finishing Ink, they may, their manager made a deal to take them off the label where we were and take them somewhere else. And so they finished that record and remixed it without me. Did they? Uh, yeah. So I, in many, res- I love those guys, but in many respects, there are things about Ink that I liked much better. And, uh, you know, it goes without saying, I guess it's normal. I liked the version we were making. Sure, whereas sure. Tom Animals is a consistent vision from all of us uh, all the way through. It's so good. But when I was, I mean, I've I've heard these albums throughout my life several times, but getting ready to talk to you, I was kind of putting it under a microscope and I was noticing, especially on like track one, I'm Life from uh-huh. Calm Animals, yeah. the drum sound, knowing now that I was getting ready to talk to you and you worked on the outfield too, they it is very clear that the same guy mic'd the drums or worked with the drums on both those albums. And I don't know if that's good or bad. It just is. How yeah. does that happen? Do you have like a signature style or sound that you're going for? Because it's very I, I, clearly the same. Well, not conscious. I mean, I have a way that I tend to do things, and and unless it doesn't work, I sort of do it again. Hmm. But I, and I think it's more that everybody hears the way they hear, and so whether they're trying to or not, it tends to steer things in a certain direction. Like, do you hear the snare really bright, or do you hear the snare really cracky in the middle, or do you hear the bass drum louder than the bass, or deeper than the bass, and that sort of thing. Everybody has their way of where it sounds comfortable to them, I think, or when I say everybody, I mean everybody makes records, and so I think that without me thinking about it, I probably lean the drums a certain way, although I didn't I didn't hands-on mix Calm Animals on purpose. I hired Dave Thoner to mix it. Mm. Uh, but obviously I'm sitting there as a producer, probably steering him in a certain direction anyway. <laughs> right, right. Okay. The Fix were such a, still are such a unique band with a unique vision, all their own. I know that Calm Animals, other than Driven Out, which got some airplay like on Alternative no. and well, num- n- number one AOR, not just Alternative Radio. Oh, really? I don't yeah. know that I knew that. Okay, yeah. great, good. Okay, so it was doing okay, but they're, they're an ink. I love How Much Is Enough. That's one of my favorite mm-hmm. uh, fixed tracks. The rest of the album kind of doesn't measure up to that one for me. Really? No One Has to Cry doesn't do it for you? Um, no, that's a good track, too. That's a good track, too. You yeah. know what it is, is that ink to me sounds like a band that's getting more grandiose than they need to be for the sake of probably trends and radio mm-hmm. play. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, this isn't who we are naturally, but this is what people are doing, so we'll go there too. I shouldn't speak for them, but I think there was more internal disagreement over where the songs should come from and who was writing them and which songs go on the album on that mm-hmm. record. On Calm mm-hmm. Animals, there was really none of that. Everybody was pretty much on the same page, which okay. is always a better thing. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think you mentioned it on the Rockonomics podcast that uh, Calm Animals is one of your favorite things you've ever worked on. Yeah, it is. It was great. It was a, well, it was a great experience for one thing. I know I did tell the story somewhere, but you'll forgive me because I'm senile. Go ahead. But, That's okay. But, I'm not sure where I've told it, but but um, we were rehearsing in London, talking about where to make the record, and I was suggesting either doing it at Air in London or going to New York and doing it 
at the record plant, my the, my two favorite places to record mm-hmm. at that time anyway. Um, and they said, well, I'm pretty sure it was their accountant that they said our accountant is also the accountant for George Martin's Air Montserrat studio. Mm. And they will give us five and a half weeks where it's basically their downtime, that they're finishing Keith Richards and whatever's coming in next isn't coming in for five and a half weeks. And there's no way they can fill that. You know, there's no local mm-hmm. fill-in work. So they'll give us an exceptionally good deal. And we really want to go to the Caribbean and make mm-hmm. a record. And I had a lot of trepidation about it, not the least of which being that I thought five and a half weeks was not going to be enough. Mm. But once we got there, the fact that you're all in the crucible together and you're all living together and eating together and on the same schedule and it's much easier to go, oh, I need the guitar player. Well, he's out at the pool. That's 10 steps away. It's like you're not chasing people or calling Mm -hmm. people. We ended up having to come to New York and do one day of overdubs, and that was all that we were ready to wow. mix. So, so we got it done perfectly in the five and a half weeks. Plus, it's the most beautiful, friendly place on <laughs> earth, just about. I mean, it was just a spectacularly good experience there. Yeah. Scale of one to ten, how badly do you miss those days? You know, it's a funny way to live your life, to be going, oh, I wish I was back in the, you know, but, but. Yeah, I mean, in in a in terms of the state of the record business, sure, yeah. I miss. Of course, I miss those days. I think everybody who remembers them does. Yeah, what a you know, I mean, people will never know what that's like again. Probably, you know, having big budgets to send little bands, not little, but you know, bands off to Montserrat to spend a month and a half, make you know, laying by a pool to no. Absolutely, because, you know, it occurred to me when I was just telling you the story that when I said, oh, and I never thought I'd be able to do it in five and a half weeks, that I'm sure there are people listening now going, I make my record in 25, you know, it's the Ruddles right. joke, in 20 minutes. Right. So. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, tell me a favorite moment then on Calm Animals. That's I, If you haven't noticed, I love this. I want to hear these little, little stories. Is there a moment on that album that you are particularly proud of or is most memorable to you? I'm not so sure it's a favorite moment, but I mean, I remember doing guitar overdubs on Driven Out Mm. and Rupert Greenall, the keyboard player, coming in, listening for a few minutes. I think, and we had already done keyboards. I mean, we were finishing the track except for vocals at that point. And I know a few minutes later we took a break and I, we all walked outside together, but out to the pool, outside together to take a few minutes and Rupert turning to the others and saying, I just heard our hit record. Driven out by thieves I watch them pillage the planet Fueled by fattening greed Trees fall to the hatchet We're chopping against the grain Our spirits in a vacuum Sending all the fame Yeah, no 
I totally agreed. I felt like, oh yeah, that track was going to be it. But it's really difficult to say with any kind of certainty because you're wrong more often than you're right when you say this is going to be a hit. But there are a couple of cases where I've been right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioning that the history of the Ink album then is the version of how much is enough that you would have worked on or known different than the one we hear on the radio? The mixes would have were all different. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I know they went back and did a track with Rupert Hine. Um, mm. I'm not even sure which one it is at this point. Okay. Now you've mentioned Scandal on here before. The uh-huh. Warrior. I mean, everybody knows this song. It's still still very prescient today. How did you get involved with that one? And that's a Holly Knight penned song. Holly Knight and Nick Gilder, I believe. Yes, you're right. Nick Gilder. That's right. I forgot to mention that. Yes. So when you're working with them, is that song in the ether somewhere? Is it like, we've got this one tune that we know is going to be a hit. We're going to build around it. I think it was that, but it was Mike Chapman who came in with that in his his pocket, knowing that, yeah. Okay. Was there any kind of inherent drama going on at the moment? Because just by naming the band Patty Smythe and Scandal, you you know, it alludes to the fact that Patty's gonna be off on her own very soon. You produced Never Enough, which is a great album, by the way. At that time there is a little bit of interband tension, but that whole renaming really happens after we're done. That uh, all the time we're making the record, it's going to be a scandal record it is a scandal record although i think that as i said there is a certain amount of internal band politics that's mostly off my radar but a little Mm. bit of that and then when it's done i think patty and zach smith are having a clearer sense that they're going to not be working together and and so columbia renames the record scandal featuring Mm. Mm. that's it but that was not sort of set in stone early on okay I keep throwing my opinions out there. I hope that's okay. That song to me is clearly the standout track on that album. Yeah, I think, well, I think so. I think most people would think so. I didn't realize that Journey's Only the Young yep. started out. That's my favorite Journey song, and I didn't realize it started out on that album. How did that happen? That came in again through Rick Chertoff, who was working at Columbia and said, oh, I have an idea for you guys. And everybody liked it. And we did it. Although I can tell you that for certain, everybody singing the crowd backgrounds is singing only Neil Young. (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) If you go listen. It's not only the young, it's only Neil Young. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. I love it. You have won a Grammy, I assume. Did you win that with Cindy? 
No, the Grammy that Cindy won is not shared with everybody else. It's just okay. the Best New Artist Grammy. No, I, well, although it is with Cindy in a sense, the Grammy is for producing the Kinky Boots original oh. original cast recording. Okay. So you're still right there alongside, working alongside Cindy closely to this day? Yeah, on many things, um, okay. not, the, not the least of which that I'm the musical director and bass guitar player in her yeah. band for quite a while now. So okay. can't, I, know, uh, can't get away. No, I was, I, when I was reading that, I was thinking, I may have seen you then in concert once. I've never actually seen Cindy in concert by herself, but I, uh-huh. I live in Colorado, uh-huh. and uh, there's a program broadcast out of here on public radio called E-Town. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Did we do that with um, Charlie Musselwhite, too? Yes, yes, yes yeah. it was during That's that period. And yeah. uh, I was there, and I was like, Front and center. That's the one and only time I've seen Cindy in the flesh. Were mm-hmm. you there? You yeah. would have been there performing, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It must be nice to have a uh, a steady gig. I mean, not to. I mean, it's a great gig. Don't get. I'm not minimizing it in any way. But in this current climate, you know. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's it, well. It it serves two important purposes. One is it's a steady job, and you know, it's sort of half my year. It, uh, most years, half my year is touring and playing with Cindy, and half my year is making records for various people, and her sometimes, and other people sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not in a row, but it tends to work out sort of that way, half and half, which is a good thing. It's, you know, doing something steadily, but it's also from a uh, just a personal satisfaction aspect that sure. playing playing live and getting to be a quasi rock star every once in a while is really good for your ego and it's fun to do and it's great to play with great people and you know there's right. kind of nothing nothing beats playing music if you can do it I mean it's where most of us got into this first and I'm lucky that I get to still do both you really are and you know I talked to a few producers on here like I said. Producers are some of my favorite people to talk to because there's so many great stories. But I feel for them sometimes because the artists they produce can go out on tour and continue to play those songs to a you know a crowd. Whereas the producer who helped shape these songs in the first place, those budgets aren't there to pay for a Rupert Hine or a Tony Visconti anymore. Yeah, it, that's a whole other story. Yes, the the fact that that the tech industry has you know targeted the music business to take profit out of it is not a great thing for music, or it's certainly not a great thing for records. Um, but you know, producers are funny that I think it it breaks down into two types. They're the types who would like to be playing or are still playing and play on records, and you know would like to play live. And then there are a couple who I, I do have friends who say. I'm so happy I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to get on a bus or I don't have to sleep in a hotel. It's like, I don't, you know, so mm-hmm. it's, it's really, it depends on your personality. Like, I, it's not like I enjoy being away from home, but on the other hand, I do enjoy the other aspects. Sure. Absolutely. Um, what about you personally? Are you married? Do you have kids? Anything like I'm, that? I'm, I'm married forever. Oh, uh, good for you. Yeah, I know. I'm the only one in the music business, just about. Um, and and yes, I have a I have a fully grown son, who is the chief of service of the emergency department uh, at uh, a, a major NYU hospital in Brooklyn. No way. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Wow. So he he escaped the music business. Wow. Okay. That's great. Um, okay, I want to throw some other names at you. I love the A's. 
Yeah. And I had Richard Bush on here. And right. um, I would say, um, because I te- like I said, I tend to seek out sometimes overlooked artists or great artists that we don't get to hear from often enough. And yeah. I feel like Richard Bush had everything to be one of the greatest rock stars ever. The voice, the mm-hmm. look, the swagger, all of it. And I'm and I'm, I'm just sad that the A's didn't, you know, take over the world. When a man lays his cards on the table, trying to make a name, looking for a miracle, looking for something that he does not know. Walking the streets and there's nowhere to go. tell you the other side of what I said before, where I said sometimes you just go, yes, this is going to be a hit record, and you're right. Uh-huh. Yeah. The A's are a case where, uh, I want to say it's four times, well, three and a half times, I said these guys are going to be huge, and I was <laughs> wrong every single time. That, that um, I always thought they were great, and I always thought the records we made, various ones over the years, were great. And alive, you know, they could be crazy in their own worst enemies in some respects, but on the other hand, they could also be just extraordinary live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you ever got to see them live, but no, they were uh-uh. they were they were, could be great. And and you know, so they really should have, as you say, have everything. You know, sometimes it's the bad luck of the draw. I can't really say why it didn't happen, but um, I I thought. After last night was going to be huge, yes. and then I thought a woman's got the power was going to break them huge, which got great sort of turntable play, but did not end up selling a bunch of records. Yeah. And then I thought that the four dances record that we made, I thought mm-hmm. that stuff was going to do really well on on independent radio or college radio, and it did not. And then when I was an RCA A and R weasel. Mm-hmm. One of the very first things I tried to sign was Richard to a solo deal, and couldn't make that happen either for a variety of reasons. Really? Oh, I totally believed in those guys, but yeah. you can't always say why something doesn't happen. You talked about being an A and R guy. One of the people you signed was Rob Junkless. Is that right? That's right. Talk about a heartbreaking record. Again, the record I made, well, I made two with him, but the one I made for RCA, uh, which is called Work Songs for a New Moon, is, I think, just an extraordinarily beautiful record, but again, just could not sort of find its place, like where he fits in the current state of the business. Yeah. He is someone, I'll I'll be totally honest, I don't remember him at all, and maybe... Two weeks ago, one of my listeners, Michael Ray Pfeiffer, hey Michael, sends me a message on Facebook and says, have you ever heard this? I think you would like it. And it was, is it Memphis Moon? Is that the name of one of the songs? Memphis Thing. Memphis Thing, that's it. Boys in the garage bands, boys playing in the bars, they're buying up the old fall feasers, they're strapping on guitars, they're turning back the pages, they're looking up. They're playing at the 
I know, I believe the only top 20 or top 15 single that Graham ever had. Yeah, he might be. Yeah. Talk about a guy who deserved more. You know what I mean? Oh, clearly. Squeezing Out Sparks was a big record in some respects, but again, I don't know that it was like a massive seller. It was just everybody's favorite record, you know? There's a guy who, to me, is an incredible singer and personality and just an unbelievable songwriter and lyricist and, you know, should have been much... He has a career, but should have been much more noticed than he was or is. I agree. Yeah. I know he's out on, he's out on tour right now. He, he always seems to be. I don't think he's played the U.S. for a while, but, but I know he's doing it as we speak. Oh, good, good. I've seen him twice, both in very small little venues. And mm -hmm. one time it was just him and an acoustic guitar. I think that's what he's doing now, yeah. Yeah. And it bums me out because I would love to have seen him in the rumor back in like the height 
of it all, you know? The band that he had together, uh, most of which we used when we made the record uh, and we ended up renaming, we just called them The Shot because we... It was my feeling that, you know, rather than just calling it Graham Parker, I, I liked it was Graham Parker and The Rumor. I just said, let's come up with a name for the band. Yeah. So, um, but that, I started to say that was a great band too, and, and included Brinsley Schwartz, who had been in The Rumor. Why do you think it is? I mean, so many people lump him and Joe Jackson and Elvis Costello together. You know, these yeah. three angry Brits coming out around the same time. Around the same time, yeah. Yep, doing similar kind of, you know, punky, new wavy, angry, but music that are obviously great songwriters. Why do you think of the three, Graham didn't quite reach the same heights? I don't know. I guess he did not crack the same... I mean, you could sometimes... I was started to say he didn't crack the same level of radio success, have the one song that took off, I guess. But I mean, I also think Squeezing Out Sparks did get an enormous amount of radio attention. So I think you have to put some of that down to the behind the scenes things we don't often attribute, you know, that you always want to look at the obvious thing of like what was the song and how much airplay does it get and who remembers it. But there's also things like which record company is better at getting records in the shops when people are looking for them. And, you know, that that was always our problem at RCA when I was there is that you could have a, a big radio record like Driven Out was. Um, and then people would say, I went to the record store and I, they don't have it. Next week, they're already listening to something else and coming back for something else. They don't necessarily come back a week or two weeks later when it's back in stock. So, yeah. so that kind of you know nuts and bolts, unsexy part of the record business sometimes is the thing that makes or breaks you. Going back to your history as an A and R guy, besides Rob Junkless, was there anyone else that you brought to the fore that you uh, you know would could say you discovered or whatever? I was really more focused in my couple of years of doing A&R that I was really more focused on being a producer and trying to help them make the best records they could, whether they were my records in quotes or not, um, you know, anybody on the label who needed help. I made a record with an Australian three-piece rock band called Kings of the Sun that you probably hmm. don't know about. I don't know but, them, no. Um, this was a kind of a young Australian band, two crazy brothers, hard rockers. really hard rocking Australians and I have some range. Nice. Um, let me throw another kind of random one at you and then we got to get into Joan Osborne. The Red Rockers. Yeah. Or, or I should say, I don't know if there's a the, I think it's just Red Rockers. Yep. Schizophrenic Circus, their last album. They only put out three and one is super punky and one is more mm -hmm. poppy and then the one, which is the one you did and then there's this one in the middle. What, ha what was it like working on Schizophrenic Circus? Those guys were great and they didn't last very long. No, they didn't. Um, they were very young and, and you know, just having a good time being in a rock band. Uh, and especially John Griffith, really talented singer, songwriter, you know, really great. Their complaint to us before we started the record was that they felt they were too 
sculpted that they weren't almost weren't allowed to make decisions for their own record. And so we tried very hard to make it more of a bandy feeling record, which is not to say that, I mean, I certainly have, you know, arrangemental input and, you know, Rick found some songs and, you know, it was, it wasn't like we just left them to do what they wanted to do, but I think we treated them with some respect as a band and that that's the thing that they were missing. There's a uh, Hooters song, Blood from a Stone, on this album. I assume that was your influence. Yeah, Rick's idea. That that, that had been on Amore. Um, uh, but again, so... there was no Hooters record at that point uh, to, uh. The, to the greater world at large. And then we had a kind of a pretty big alternative radio or college radio at that point hit with a version of Eve of Destruction. why they called it quits after this you know it was that thing of you feel like you're not getting to the next level and you're beating your head against Mm -hmm. the wall and you can only do that for so long and then you know john goes on to be part of cowboy mouth which is a bigger deal in some respects than the red rockers were and so you know i think people find their way into other avenues because as i said you, you can only scrape along for so long. Darren Hill from the band yep. about a year or two ago said he would come on the show and then I've never been able to, he kind of disappears for long stretches. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. do it. And then I don't hear from him again for six mm-hmm. months. So anyway, let's talk about Joan. Is this another Rick Chertoff, Eric yep. Brazilian, all these guys coming together? Yeah. Is that what this is? At that point, um, Rick had moved on to yet another label, Was had his own little label imprint through, uh, it was a Polygram label, and was one of the people who got turned on to Joan playing around in clubs and, and decided he would chase after her and got it and put that together with with the team again. Now, a lot of time had passed. I mean, this was mid-90s when this started to happen. 94 or 5, I think, yeah. I mean, no offense to the Hooters or anyone else, but they they aren't on, like, the they're not the hottest band in the land at that moment. It just seems like what an improbable group of people to come together to make this woman the smash that she was, you know? Yeah, I guess, but it's not in the sense that everybody's influences and heart are in the same places. I mean, you're talking about everybody involved there loved the band and everybody involved there sort of loved Dylan. And and, and it, it came from a sort of similar place without reggae aspects, but it came from a similar place otherwise of all the other influences of things that we had done. It wasn't sort of really out of left field. And we also knew from experience that those are guys 
who can adapt and can play anything and can write with you and make you feel like you're a part of it and not try to take over your life. And, you know, they're good collaborators. And as it turned out, then the biggest hit on the record is a non-collaboration where Eric, I'm sure, told you the story, but, you know, shows up with it and Rick hears that and says to Joan, do you think you could sing that? Yeah, 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 what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. If I remember correctly, Eric said that he wrote it like almost immediately. It, it was one of those situations where it just kind of like fell out of the sky. You know, Pretty much. he was. The story was his then not yet wife, <laughs> soon, to yeah. be, soon to be wife, um, was saying, oh, sh- oh, show me how you use the Porta Studio. And he said, okay, and I'll put something down. And he wrote this little riff and he put it down and she said, well, now sing it. And he went, what do you mean sing it? There's no song yet. And then he just sort of came back the next, I don't know how soon, but like the next day and it, pretty much came in one go with a couple of little tweaks he just put it together so yeah it was it was a, oh show me how you'd write a song and that That's was it amazing wow life-changing yep where did she go and why do you think she was she came on so hot and bright there and so huge and then it you know it was years before the follow-up came and i just wondered where she went she hasn't really gone away like a lot no. of people she continues to make records, and, you know, she has a um, a Dylan covers record that's out now that's pretty cool, and she's touring that, and she's played with the Grateful Dead, and she's, you know, done a lot of stuff that she, she keeps herself out there, and I think she has the career she wants to have in a lot of respects. Okay. You know, so I, I can't really fault her for that. Um, I think you, you know, I would say even, you know, on the record, I would say, that people make choices about what the next thing they want to do is or what foot forward they want to take. Some people don't want to chase singles or don't want to do a certain kind of music or more specifically do want to do a certain kind of record next. And, you you know, the public is funny that way, that a lot of times people want you to do the same thing over and over again, and that doesn't always play with an art, you know, and art, most artists don't want to do that. Yeah, I can understand that. I wondered if that level of success, you know, frightened her a little bit, as it does to a lot of people. For sure. I think that can happen. I don't think that was the case with Joan. I think she just had things she wanted to do and felt like now's my chance to do the things I want to do. But, you know, I shouldn't speak for her, but that's my feeling about it. I don't think, I don't think she was uncomfortable with her success. Hmm. Okay. I was just curious. Um, sure. You know, for someone who had that much success, um, it, she's had a, a different career afterwards than you might have imagined. Although I will say for anyone who's listening, uh, she, if you, if you saw the documentary standing on the, uh, in the shadows of Motown. Yeah, she was fantastic. Oh my gosh. She kills. I thought she was one of the best things about Me it. Me too. Although there's some other great stuff going on there, but yeah, I thought she was absolutely perfect in that. Yes. Yeah, amazing. So you know she's still got it. She just does it on in her way, you know? Yeah, um, and as I said, she's out there. She's playing. She's making records. She's doing music, yep. you know, which is, I think that's what she wanted to do more than she wanted to be a pop star is my yeah. feeling. Yeah. We try to sensitively cover the business side on here. And, I mean, is one of us probably the biggest 
moneymaker that you've been a part of, or is it something different? As a single song? Oh, I don't know. I would probably say Time After Time. Is it? Okay, okay. So over the years, Time After Time, and and I'm guessing you're getting like a producer royalty or something like that on on these songs, correct? Uh, Some yes, some no. It depends which one it is and what the deal is, but let's not get into that. Okay, no, that's fine. Again, I we try I try to be sensitive yeah. about yeah, it. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just, you know, we try to learn as best we can about some of the business aspects of some of these things. Sure. I, I guess the point of all that is that you've had some very huge successes throughout your career. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you celebrate? When you had a major mm-hmm. success, maybe it's a mailbox money, maybe it's some artist you love wanting you to come work with them, whatever it is, how did you celebrate? Did you go buy a bottle of champagne? Did you... I don't know. Did you go on a long vacation? Did you buy a house? Did you... uh, Something. What was it? Well, you know, it's funny because I'm not always so good about that, that I tend to be a little superstitious about it. And Mm -hmm. and fortunately, my wife is pretty good at saying, oh, you finished that record. Let's just go out to a nice place. Or let's just Mm -hmm. do something nice and celebrate, you know? And so that makes it easier in a way for me to let go and go, oh, yeah, that would be a good idea. But I do remember after finish, finishing Bangin', um, and again, we were following up to a, uh, you know, a double platinum record. Mm-hmm. I had a pretty strong expectation Bangin' was going to do okay. Um, and, and I had been in London for, I think, I want to say four or five months, something ridiculous, uh, making Bangin'. And so it had been away. She'd come over to visit in the middle, but I hadn't really been home in a long time. And so as soon as I finished that record to, quote, celebrate, we went immediately to Hawaii for two weeks. Nice. There you so go. That's, that's probably my biggest blowout. Let's <laughs> celebrate this. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's great. You were a part of this band, Too Much Joy, which I will be honest, I don't know a ton about. I mean, I've heard the mm-hmm. name. I've heard yep. some songs to prepare to talk to you and everything like that. Yep. My understanding is that they were instrumental in your life in making that transition from a musician, from a producer to a musician or vice versa. Correct? From, from at, least, at least to back being a, a touring musician, yeah. I mean, I had started in bands, but... Um, I produced the, got a phone call to produce this band called Too Much Joy, which, who had had a kind of a big alternative radio hit, but had not really sold a bunch of records. And actually, uh, it, I'll bring it full circle with you and your podcast that I'm pretty sure it was Michael Beinhorn who made the suggestion mm-hmm. that I would be a good match for him, for them mm-hmm. rather. And I'm not. A hundred percent it was Michael, but I'm going to attribute the quote to him anyway, that somebody, because they repeated it to me, somebody said, oh, you guys should meet this guy Whitman. You'll really like each other because you both think you're smarter than everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. It wasn't exactly, you know, it was a little bit of a backhanded compliment. But, well, but but I'm pretty sure, I'm not sure if that quote was Michael. Somebody said it. But Michael, I think, was one of the ones who said, oh, there's this guy who I think would be good for you. That's uh, And so I met this band, Too Much Joy, and made a record with them and had a pretty successful collaboration that we really, in that Fifth Beatle way that I felt, and they felt, we really hit it off. And I ended up singing on the record and playing on the record as well as producing it and found myself at the end of that process they would play some shows and they'd say hey come you know you play guitar on the record come and play the 12 string guitar on stage with us on a couple of songs and so I was doing that more and more and then at a certain point so maybe a year or so later we were writing together for their next record 
and the bass guitarist decided he just had had enough. He didn't want to do it anymore. Mm. And they turned to me and said, well, would you like to play bass guitar? And <laughs> so I found myself at that advanced age, uh, rejoining a young rock band and touring and playing guitar, uh, or rather bass guitar, with them for, and on the next record as well. And all of a sudden I was in the band again. Somewhere in, along that timeline, a couple of years later, that I started to make another record with Cindy, and she had a show to do. It was uh, Yoko Ono had invited her to play a show at the opening of the John Lennon exhibit at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was mm. her and Matthew Sweet and Billy Preston. Mm. Uh, not together, but the three artists on that, that Yoko had requested. And so Cindy in the studio said... Uh, Oh, you're playing with too much joy. Why don't you play with me? And, and just like that. And I said, okay. And I played mm. that show and pretty much have been playing in her band ever since. No way. So, that was it. Yeah. So if I hadn't sort of made the jump back into being a touring musician with too much joy, I don't think I would be on the road and, and yeah. being being the musical director for Cindy. <laughs> I mean, we had a studio relationship, but that sure. was the beginning of our musicianship or musician on the road relationship. Wow. So it turned into this totally serendipitous thing, you know? Who knows? In a sliding doors kind of way, who knows? Yeah, it's a totally sliding doors kind of thing, exactly. That, yeah. that it just happened to be you know, we were off the road with too much joy. She was ready to do something. It worked out and it just, yeah. That's wild. It's been an enormous change in my life. I mean, not always to the uh, pleasure of my wife that I'm on the <laughs> road a certain amount, but it certainly has revitalized my career in a lot of ways that I have sort of a two-pole view of the music business now that being a touring musician, recording musician, and also still producing and mixing records, it gives me, I think, a perspective, aside from the additional work, it gives me a perspective that I think is a, is a good thing. It's good to not lose touch with what the guys you're making the records for have to go through on the other side. Now, again, I hope this isn't too sensitive. If it is, you tell me. We'll cut it out. But I assume, I mean, do you still no, make a, a little... Not on the first date. <laughs> oh, oh, that's not the question? Sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's a better question, actually. It's actually, it's not true. It's, it's, it's totally fine on the first date. Oh, that's good. I uh, love it. Okay, my actual question was, I assume that you get a point or two. I mean, do you still see some mailbox money from She's So Unusual? I'm happy to say very much so, and it varies from year to year. Sure. But um, the outfield in particular had, uh, Cindy had a kind of a big uptick last year and for some reason the for some reason the outfield this year had a good year and I'm not exactly sure why it might have something to do with that 
uh, execrable uh, detergent commercial that does a version of your love. Harry's meeting clients from far away, but they only see his wrinkles. He's got to play it cool to seal the deal. Better find a way to smooth things over if only Harry used some bounce to dry. Yeah, he would be less wrinkly and winning at life. It's got nothing to do with me directly, but I think it puts the track back on people's radar, as it were. And so I think that there was an uptick in... in I don't want to call it sales, but it's whatever it is, sales streams, whatever it yeah. is. So. Yeah. Okay. So, yes, that's the nice thing about the business. It's not not what it used to be, but some of those things are the gift they keep on giving. Yeah, yeah. Tell me your favorite memory. Tell me when you look back and you, I mean, you're still in the throes of it working with Cindy. Yeah. Do you have a favorite moment that you just can't believe happened to you? I'm imagining you've met some heroes along the way. Sure. I'll tell you a weird one. It's uh, it's not exactly my favorite moment, but I was at Air making a record in London, making a record, uh-huh. and uh, had to take just you know in the middle of an overdub, and you know it's sort of hot, and you, you know how that gets where it's hot and heavy, and the singer's on a roll, and you don't actually it was the guitar player on a roll, and you don't want to stop the momentum. But I really had to pee, <laughs> and so I said, okay, I'll be I'll be five minutes. Hold your thought. Just I'll be right back. I walked all the way back to the end of the hallway, and I had to, you had to go up the stairs through the lounge to where the loos were. And I go up the stairs, and there's the album release party for Paul McCartney's new record. Oh. So I'm walking by Paul, and the um, chief of maintenance at the studio says, Oh, Bill, do you know George Martin? And, 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 and George says, Oh, hello, and shake the you arm know, working on a record downstairs. And I had to say... I'm really sorry, but I'm right in the middle of an overdub, and I just can't. I can't stay here and talk. No. And it, it, in some respects, it was the responsible adult, like the thing you want your record producer to do. And in some <laughs> respects, I think, what kind of an idiot, oh. <laughs> you know, doesn't stay and talk to Paul and George instead? Of, <laughs> but anyway. Oh my gosh, that's the best. Oh man. Now you've I'm noticing, you know, there's a bit of a of a accent here. Where are you from originally? Well, I grew up in England, but I've been in the States forever. So, okay. you know, I have a little bit of a transatlantic thing, but Okay. And you live in Brooklyn? Is that right? No, no, no. I live in Westchester. Oh, okay. Westchester. Okay. Now, I know on your resume there's like Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger, but I don't yep. think you actually interfaced with these people. You just remixed one of their songs or something, right? We mixed a Dylan track, Series of Dreams, but uh, no, with Jagger, we made, a, we made a record start to finish, which was also with Rob and Eric and Anton Fig and people who had played on Cindy's record, too. You did? Which one is this? Um, it's the single version of Hard Woman. You're only going to find it on YouTube. It's really a great version, and Eric Bazilian plays an incredible guitar solo on it, and it's really a, a fun version. She's a hot Baby. 
that that even those people had all worked together and been in the same sphere at some time. Yeah, I'll tell wow. I, I'll tell you about that if you like. But yes, um, please. Well, the two two things. One is just a funny thing of like we we had cut a version of it to sort of show him before he walked in. Sort of, oh, this is where we're headed. Uh-huh. Uh, and so he walks in and he sits down at the desk right next to me. And as it's playing back, he, you know, sort of nods his head a little, and then he bounces a little. And then pretty soon, he's doing the, you know, pointing the finger and doing the chicken dance and doing the whole, the whole dagger routine sitting right next to me at the desk, which was pretty funny. Uh, but then he, the other interesting thing, though, was he said, um, this is in Record Plant Studio B, which was an insanely live room, so much that when you walked, your footsteps went. Mm. It was a beautiful room for drums because of that, but very little separation. Everything splashed everywhere. So in that room, Mick is singing maybe 10 feet in front of a very loud drummer rocking out. And the fact that it was not a huge room made it that much splashier and liver, um, which made the drums sound incredible in there, but it was very tough to get any kind of isolation because everything just splatted all around the place in a, mm-hmm. in a great way, but it did. Mick says, um, I don't want Anton to put down the track in a vacuum. I want to be standing singing to him and with him watching me sing, so he's playing with me. Mm. And we go, and we, kind of a scramble, we take a big condenser U47 FET and throw it up, maybe 10 or 15 feet in front of Anton. Jagger is facing Anton 10 or 15 feet away in this crazy live room where you think you're going to get nothing but drums on that vocal mic, but at least Anton can watch mixing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I soloed that mic, it sounded almost like he was overdubbed. Really? That that guy is so loud when he wants to be that that I just said, that guy was born to sing in front of yeah. a loud rock and roll band. I mean, you probably yeah. had to have a voice like that to be able to do it in a crappy little club in 1960. I'm not surprised. I've been to hundreds of concerts in my life, and Mick Jagger has more stage presence than any rock star I've ever seen live in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the now Hard Woman is on She's the Boss, but this is not the version that you worked on. That's right. The version on She's the Boss... I, again, I don't want to talk out of school, but my understanding is he wasn't totally happy with it and was looking ah. for another version as a single, as a radio track, okay. and so we, we completely redid it. Okay, yeah. She's the Boss was produced by now Rogers, and so I that's I didn't connect the dots before. Is that true the whole time, or are there several producers on that? Uh, really you're probably sure. right. Yeah. I mean, you're, I don't know all the details. I know that, I think he's credited on it, but there's probably a bunch of other cooks in that kitchen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you saw this. You know, he had heart surgery recently. And I he, did. Yeah. And he posted this video of him in a yeah, like doing a ballet, aerobics, stu- right? yeah, yeah, like a ballet studio. But it's him doing like his all his stage yeah. movements, you know, but practicing them in front of a mirror. It was well, fascinating. You know he had to. Yeah. Yeah. You think of it 
as his struts and his movement is so unique that you just imagine it being kind of spontaneous and, you know, overflowing out of him. But he practices that stuff. I'm sure it starts from the way he feels comfortable moving, True. but you know, there's nothing that's not calculated yeah. about a show about a show of that dimension. Right. There's no one like him. Um, what is your take or your philosophy on producing records at this point? Um, I mean, a lot's changed. You were really hot there for a while, and the business changed, and people's careers have to pivot into new areas. You did that successfully. What's your take on all of this? You know, my feeling about producing has always, despite the fact, I'll interrupt myself, despite the <laughs> fact that I come from a weird kind of mix of musician background and engineer background, I consider myself more of an arranger producer than anything else. That obviously, I think I have some taste in helping to shape songs and pick songs, but I think my real strength is in arranging a band to have the record be the best record that it can be. I almost feel like the better it's arranged, the less recording becomes an issue. It becomes much, much easier to record it and mix it and put it together, and it just sounds right because it's being played right. Mm. So, so my focus has always been on kind of being the I don't. I want to say almost, you know, the fifth Beatle kind of producer. I like to insert myself into a situation and then help to shape what the band does to make the record come together. Whether it, whether it's really an artist and we're putting together a band or it's a self-contained band, that my focus tends to be on the the song first and then the arranging and then the performances and only last the recording. Yeah. So what you're talking about there, the arranging and the and the song and everything, that's more pre-work. That sounds like the kind of thing, the stuff that you sort out maybe even before you get to the studio. Or if you are in the studio, it's before you're really laying down tracks that are intended for the final album. Would you agree? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, I think pre-production is important. And I think getting the bass and the drums and the basic idea of how things go together is obviously something you do before you push record. Mm -hmm. or hit the space bar these days. But um, but I also think even... I like to leave a certain amount to serendipity and playing around the studio and sort of hoping that an idea comes and being open to experimenting and maybe taking a turn you didn't predict. So sometimes it's just making those choices in the moment, but I'm always making those choices in in the context of what it's living with so that the arrangement is still is still not fighting itself mm. you know i think a lot of a lot of times in experienced artists and increasingly these days people making their own records without any guidance at all i think people have a tendency to just throw stuff on there almost without listening to what else is going on and without trying to have a balance i've always tried to sort of have it sound it's a cliche phrase but like mm -hmm. a record the whole time that we're working. And as you add another layer, to be sure, it still sounds like a record and it still works and it's not destroying what you've done previously. And so even if that's not super planned in pre-production, uh, it's looking at it with an arranger's eye or ear mm. as, we're, mm. as we're experimenting, as we're overdubbing. Um, me not being, you know, in the music business or anything like that, I, when, when you talk about arranging, I'm, 
I'm imagining, I'm applying it to filmmaking, which I also don't know anything about, but um, the storyboarding, you know, you hear about directors sort of storyboarding their vision of where all the shots are going to be and how they want them to flow together. Would you say that that's similar maybe to what a producer or an arranger is doing in their pre-work? In some respects, although, you know, because they're, because of the of overdubbing world or because you've got multiple people interreacting, um, it's a little more of a vertical kind of integration. The filmmaking thing is a little, and at least in, I don't know anything about it either, but it seems to me that's a more horizontal kind of linear process where it's, it's, it's moving along through the story from the beginning to the end. But I'm also talking about, you know, you've got bass and drums, and now you're going to put guitar over that same instance in time. Does what the guitar player plays destroy the snare drum, or does... Mm. Mm. Yeah, or, or do the background vocals clash with what the keyboard player is playing? It's right. like, it's it's every. I like because I'm a Beatles fanatic. I like very very arranged sort of rock bands. I like bands where everything has its place. Not a fan of the kind of records where it's just a room full of people. Sort of everybody's playing their ass off and jamming, mm. and it's sort of a jumble. I I don't feel comfortable making that kind of record. So hmm. I, I, li- I like everybody to be aware of what everybody else is playing. And a lot of times, that's the biggest part of my job early on. It's kind of amazing to me, but it seems to often be the case that you get in a rehearsal room with a rock band and you say, let's just have the bass player and drummer play what they've been playing and listen to each other. And it's amazing to me how many times the bass player will turn around to the drummer and go, I didn't know you were playing that bass drum in mm. that part. Because they've, they've never stopped to strip it down and really mm. pay attention to what they're playing with each other. And it makes such a big difference to be aware of that kind of thing. I could see that. You know, as you're saying this, I'm asking myself, I wonder if producers today matter, if, if pop music, we'll call it, is a producer-driven uh, format anymore and the way that it would have been in your day. And then, but then I'm realizing, well, you know, there's almost no music made with organic, uh, instruments anymore. Not really. Well, there, Not are, the- there are some, there are some kinds of genres where that's still happening for sure. Right. But also if anything, it's a pop music, real pop music is a super produced medium right. where you've, where you've got, you know, a guy sitting at the computer shaping and manipulating the arrangement, right. maybe himself, but it's very, very arranged. Yeah. It's, it tends, you know, it, on the other hand, there is sort of jam bandy world and uh, indie rock world where you still can get people sort of sitting together in a room and playing. It's in those cases where the records I like better are the ones where there's somebody overseeing the forest and not, you know, just letting the trees do whatever they want. Yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm kind of realizing is that the role of the producer today, I mean, they're still, you know, arranging and and doing all the things that they may have done before. They just I on the pop charts. I mean, we're, I yes, there are genres where there are still organic instrumentation going on, but on the pop yeah. and I can only I mean, look, I have little kids and they no longer want to listen to the music that I want them to listen to anymore. They want to listen to the radio. And sure. uh, I'm getting to that point where every song sounds the same to me because there's so few actual instruments being played. It's a lot of dance music and a lot of electronic music. A lot of it yep. is great, you know? Exactly. It's a it's a sound, and, you know, the people who love that sound think that two guitars, bass, and drums is tedious, you know? It's mm-hmm. just the sound you like. But, yeah. um, but yes, I think... 
that music, though, is being arranged or produced, if you want to use that word, by maybe one guy sitting in front of a mm-hmm. computer. But it's right. still, be, it's it's still, if anything, even more shaped because of that, because you're not getting any human interaction. Every one of those choices has to be made by a guy with a mouse. Mm-hmm. Right. That's it. Yeah, the mouse. Yeah. I talk to so many because I I seek out specifically legacy artists or legacy musicians for this podcast and my my favorite people to talk to are the producers because you get to run through their resume and hear all the great stories but on the same on the other hand I feel bad for them sometimes because they're the ones that created these albums but the artists are the ones who can at least go out there and tour them and make money at concerts the poor produce like I had Rupert Hine on here I mean the guy is a legend and but he can't you know he's got to find a gig Sure, but on the on the other hand, Rupert is still getting paid for Reach the Beach and didn't True. have to dra- didn't have to drag himself around on a tour bus for years. And Good you know, point. you know, a lot of artists will say, you know, I had to go out there and work that record, and you sat in your bedroom and got the <laughs> checks. So you know, that works both ways. True. Good um, point. Although Rupert is a performer, songwriter as Good well. Point. Yes, you know, he is. But yeah. Air supply. I realize the best part of love is the thinnest slice, and you don't count for much, but I'm not letting go. I believe this too much to believe it. Air supply, um, I was doing a lot with Arista, and Rick was, Chertoff was still an Arista staff producer at that point. And Clive had this band, and in Clive's way, almost everything had to be sort of polished to the, uh, you know, to the ridiculous degree to try to be a single, because he's very single-focused kind of record biz guy. Sure. Um, and so basically, they were unhappy, or Clive was unhappy with the current state of the mix. That, by the way, I didn't think there was anything wrong with. But we ended up adding some background vocals and remixing. Lost in Love to try to make it as hit ready as you could make mm. it for American radio, which I think it turned out to be, was it number one? If it was certainly not number one, it was certainly a very big hit. <laughs> so whatever we did, we got right there. You know you can't fool me. Yeah, you mentioned range. I mean, to go from a band like Kings of the Sun to uh, Air Supply, you don't get much more range than that. Yes, although they're both Australian. Yeah, very good point. That's true. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about Loverboy? You did some work with Loverboy, specifically songs I really like. 
Yep, I, I mixed a couple of things. I think three songs on "Love and Every Minute of It," um, and uh, that was really um, kind of interesting. That just came from the label. I was just, you know, a sort of a, dare I say, happening mixer at the time, and mm-hmm. um, I think it was Epic just called and asked if I would mix those songs. And again, remixing Mutt Lang is not much of a chore. I mean it's already pretty great. Talk about an arranger. I mean, everything is so perfectly put together and recorded. It's not difficult to mix. The one thing I remember is on, um, on the ballad that I mixed, uh, I think it's called, this could be the night. That's it. I just remember for whatever reason, um, well, I'll, I'll say it this way. I did a mix of it where I made the drums and especially the drum fills very prominent. And then I went down, uh, I happened to be going to see them uh, playing with somebody else and just the drummer bumped into me and went, did you add drums to that? Did somebody else play on that? It's a, and I said, no, I just made you loud. <laughs> and he was just really, really happy with it. But for whatever reason, on Mutt's original mix, um, and you'll forgive me, I don't remember who the original engineer was, but it's not like Mutt doesn't have great people working with him. But uh, for whatever reason, the drums were just sort of used to be the timekeeper and not be the dominant thing. And I just, for whatever reason, felt that I would make it more important, hmm. which again just seemed to work at the time. Yeah. That make it last It was really kind of fascinating, um, enlightening for me to be able to dig into the multi-track a little bit and see some of Mutt's little tricks. Some of I which bet. I'm still, some of which I'm still stealing to this day. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, little background vocal tricks and effects yeah. things that that were printed that you could see. Oh, that's how they did that. Ah, well, he's a master, and he has yeah. certain you said certain tricks that are, um, you know. Uh, uh, certifiably his. You listen yeah. to Def Leppard or Brian yep. Adams or ACDC or whatever, especially from that time period, you know it's him. Yes. Yeah, and my my friend Dave Thoner, who who worked on uh, For Those About to Rock with Mutt, uh, oh, he and I have also talked about, like, oh, did he do this? Oh, you know that trick? <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've faded Mutt tricks. I love it. Who would have been your rock and roll hero, and did you ever interface with that person? Uh, it would probably be McCartney, uh, yeah. you know, uh, you know, any Beatle, but but McCartney in particular. And uh, you know, we've met, we've talked, and I, aside from that time when I couldn't, but um, uh-huh. but I, but I've never worked with him. I mean, that would be okay. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last two questions. Number one, well, I have three. Is there an interesting story around the Chieftains? I love the Chieftains so much. Um, the funny thing about them is that was more of a kind of a purist thing for me that, you know, they make the sound they make and I just set it up. Um, I, I just pretty much set them up as if they were an orchestra and mic'd everything to capture it live. And fortunately it sounded great in the room and, and just did. Okay. The one thing about them is they're really funny together, or at least they were, really? and, you know, they're like, 
any other kind of rock band except that they were considerably older than, than most of the rock bands, you know. But I, it's it. I remember groupies smoking weed. Yeah, exactly. Not quite. Right. Not quite smoking weed, but okay. but but you know, sort of looking at the girls in the audience. Sure. And, you okay. know, the, but 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 the the I remember one of them, one of them walked by me to go into the bathrooms and said, "I'm just going to have a wee drink. Don't tell the others." <laughs> and and then. Five minutes later, another one walked by and said almost exactly the same thing. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. That's kind of just what you want to want the guys from the Chieftains to say to you. Yeah. That's sort of, that's, a, that's perfect, you know? Yeah. Um, you had mentioned earlier uh, when we talked at the beginning about how hot you were during that period of the outfield and, and uh, Hooters and everybody. Did you turn anyone down that you regret or were, what kind of offers were coming to you? What could you have worked on? It's hard to know sometimes in the conversation, and somebody says, are you interested in making this record? It's conceivable I wouldn't have got it anyway. It's, you'd mm-hmm. never know for sure. But I was offered The Cutting Crew that died oh, in your arms tonight, I which that. I thought was a great song. And I actually said, you know, I, I can't do it. I'm doing something else. But there's this guy, John Jansen, you should know, who ended up doing it, mm-hmm. that I recommended John for that. Uh, the other one was T'Pau. Mm, sure. Heart and Soul. Yeah, exactly. Which Roy Baker ended up doing, um, who's also a friend. And, you know, I, I, it's hard to know. Once Roy Thomas Baker reared his head, it's conceivable he was going to get it and they were going to blow me off anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But I had already said no. In fact, we tried to talk them into letting us have that song to do with Patti Smythe. And they were mm-hmm. smart enough to say, no way, this is the thing we're hanging our hat on. And there, of right. course, they were right. But, you, you know, you can't blame me for asking. Yeah, of course. Oh, that's great. Okay. Last one. And we'll probably, we play an intro song and then an outro song on these things. And I think for the outro song, I want to play Invincible by Pat Benatar. Uh-huh. I love that song. And you worked on that too. Tell me the story of Invincible. That was for a movie. Yep. Um, and it was pretty much fully formed that, you know, there's another Chapman thing, which we did out at Cherokee in L.A. And um, the one thing interesting about that that I remember is Michael kept pushing for more and more vocal in the mix to the point where I was saying, are you sure you don't think that vocal is awfully fucking loud? <laughs> uh, and and um, I'm sorry if this is a family. Post. No, you can say okay. whatever you want. Okay. So, um, I really was saying that vocal is crazy loud. And I remember running into around that time, running into Jimmy Iovine somewhere who went, yeah, I really really like that invincible record, but the vocals really loud. It was like consensus was the vocal was crazy loud. And now I listen to it and the vocal doesn't seem loud at all to me. Huh? It's weird how I think taste change yeah. and and styles change and back then especially with fm radio being so important the tendency was to sync the vocal a little bit because the limiters on the radio would make it seem louder and all that mm. sort of thing so th- that's the that's the main thing i remember about invincible is that what i thought was the stupid loud vocal turns out to be very sensible i've never noticed it being loud and no, i love I'm, that well, song you probably wouldn't now. no <laughs> but i i do feel like that and we didn't talk about her really but the lita ford album that you did i mean yep. those songs Songs are both they're more hard rock which is a, a little bit of an outlier for you i mean it's that chiming guitar that bright sound that comes from the outfield and the hooters is not i mean well yeah, but you, again you those applied things, magic to those things but they weren't thank your you, but i'm saying but i guess those are my bigger hits but on the other hand as i said i made 
a Kings of the Sun record, and I mixed a Triumph record, and I did Headpins records, and and you know a lot of sort of heavier rock bands. It's not like I'm opposed to loud, noisy guitars. I I quite enjoy them actually. It makes me so happy just to talk to guys like you who've done so many things and have and more importantly, produce so much music that matters to me and to get a little taste of what it must have been like to be you in those moments really means a lot. And I think my my listeners will love it too. And so I appreciate you giving me some time. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope you think you got what you needed and good talking with you. This bloody road remains a mystery. William Whitman. Hope you guys enjoyed that. I love hearing from producers, and I know you do too. Just all that experience and wisdom that they bring to the table, all those great stories, all those fantastic people they worked with, all the great music they made. I mean, he had talked about his approach to and philosophy of to production. Just imagine the great stuff that is working around in his mind. And I've mentioned in here before how important it is for producers, especially, to reinvent themselves. Artists can go out and play those hits. You know, producers don't have that luxury always. But he's managed to do it. He's working with Cindy, and it's perfect. Huge thanks again, i got to say it again, to Dill, our buddy with the Rockonomics podcast. And if you guys aren't listening to Rockonomics, it's great. He does some very similar things to what we do. Great work. And i got to say a huge thank you to our buddy Paul Underwood. He's just a genius when it comes to production. And so I like giving him episodes like William or Ron Nevison or Liberty or Keith Scott or whatever because they got to sound great because there's so much music to work in. And I know that he can do it. And so thank you, Paul, for everything that you do. We have a big one next week. Regular listeners may remember that there is a top five most requested list of Hustle guests. And so far, we've had three of those people on the show. Steve Ferris from Mr. Mr., Sandy Soraya and the girls from Voice of the Beehive. Well, there's two people left on that list, and one of them is next week's guest. And those people have a new album coming out. So it's pretty exciting. You probably can figure out who that is if you're a regular listener. If you're not, trust me, you're going to want to come back because it is one of my top 10 favorite bands of all time. Uh, you guys know how to find us by now. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. We do not have any bonus material coming out this week, but next week is our deep dive. So stick around, guys. We will be back next Tuesday. Thanks. <laughs>